Yo, so check it out. I was looking at Wikipedia this morning trying to figure this out. So California has more people than any other U.S. state. They have, according to the 2015 Census Bureau, they have about 38% of the population, 38.8 and 39% of the population is Hispanic Latino, and which makes Hispanics the largest ethnic group in California. Silicon Valley is in California. So why doesn't the media focus as much on the Latinx community? It's a good question. I talk about this a lot with Lily from K4. Um, you know, that I mean, everybody, you know, we definitely need to make the whole ecosystem equitable, but it's just surprising to me that there isn't that much of a focus, which is why today on the Breaking Stars podcast, um, we thought it was important to interview Ana Diaz Hernandez, who has been leading efforts in this area for, for a long time. Um, she is the head of sales at interviewing IO and you'll learn a lot more about her um, on the podcast. Um, but it's, it's crazy to me that the media focuses mostly on, you know, DACA and ICE raids and things like that. When there's a huge community here that would benefit from learning some of the tactics that we share on the Breaking Stars podcast to learn how to break in and get the skills that people are benefiting from in the place that they've lived in for so long. Um, if this is your first time tuning in, please like our page, join our group on Facebook, tell your friends and let them know that there are other Hispanics and Latinx people like you in this community. Uh, please write a v- review. Uh, hold me accountable for the things that I'm saying. If there's things that I'm not aware of that we should be uh, focusing on the podcast, please let us know. Um, we're we're going to talk about a lot of things outside of California, too, because Anna is from Georgia as well, which is dope. Uh, we're going to learn about how she became how she broke into venture capital. We're going to talk about the women's groups that she that she runs in the community, the foundations and boards that she sits on, the things that she learned while she was at Udacity and all kinds of other things. If you have any more tips and ideas, please let us know. And I'm going to start rambling because without further ado, it's time to break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, yo, yo. This is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Archer and Timor Meister. And this is the Breaking Stars Podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah. So today we're sitting at Hustle. And it's a Sunday and uh, we've all come together to have a very special guest who is going to talk about her experience breaking into startups, navigating the landscape, and also finding ways to, do, to have a significant impact in her community. Ruben, can you please introduce the guest? Yes, we're here with one of the first people I met here in the Bay Area. Her name is Ana Diaz Hernandez, who is the head of sales at Interviewing IO, which is a platform for engineers to practice technical interviews and land jobs at the top tech companies. Before this, she was born in Sacramento, moved to Mexico at five years old. And five years later, she moved to a rural part of Georgia, where the community was predominantly migrant farm workers that were Mexican and African-American. Today, she's going to talk about how she leveraged online communities to get into Stanford, break into startups, how she went through an acquisition process, hustled her way into venture capital at KPOR, led business development and online education platforms like Udacity, and all kinds of other things. I love Anna not just because of how much she takes care of her family, she has two siblings by the way, but also because she is a leader in the community with her Women of Color and Tech Bay Area group 
her advisory council position for code.org, her position on the board of director for the Chicana Latino Foundation, and many other things that will take me forever to mention in this intro. We love stories like this, not just because Argentina and I also met in Georgia, but also because my father grew up on a farm in a rural part of Georgia called Blakely. And he always emphasized the importance of family, our Latinx roots, the importance of language. And we are excited to speak with Anna today. So without further ado, Anna, welcome. Thanks for having me, y'all. <laughs> Thank you for joining welcome, us. Welcome, welcome. So during the pre-chat, we talked a little bit about the community that you grew up in. I think it'd be awesome to like start off kind of describing through audio what it was like, life was like in Mexico versus what life was like in Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. I arrived in Mexico at the age of about five. I had been born in California. And I think I, I really look back on that experience of having lived uh, some of these young years in two different countries. And I look back on that with such, I guess, joy and a sense of gratefulness because being able to spend primary years in, in two different countries just gives you so much perspective about how there are so many ways of living in the world and how much you can learn from anybody regardless of where they came from and how much diversity there is. And so I think that from a very young age, I just learned how uh, there's no one right way to do anything, right? And I got exposed to many different cultures. I moved around a lot as a kid throughout Mexico and have lived in many places, have been privileged in being able to travel a fair bit. And I think upon arriving to Mexico as a, as a young child, one of the first things that I I noticed was just, I was able to reconnect with my family. So most of my family were, I lived in Mexico. We had been in the U.S. for a while when my dad was going to school. And so I think what I most remember about Mexico was going back and immediately having this huge network of people that cared so much about me. So we lived in Mexico for many years and uh, had, you know, 10 aunts and uncles on my mom's side and like five on my dad's side. And every family gathering was at least a hundred people, right? And, and so I think the one kind of thing I really miss about Mexico, I miss many things, but the one I miss the most is just being close to that much family at one time. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you talked a little bit about the kind of like the education level, the foreign community in Georgia when you got there and like some insights that you gathered as you were growing up from the education perspective. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, after leaving Mexico, my, my family chose to move to Georgia and my dad is a professor at UGA there. And my mom leads the migrant student education for our particular district. And so I was, you know, immersed in a community of living with two parents who are educators in some way. And was very privileged to have that experience of people who really, really cared about education, but also really cared about our success as, as kids. Right. And so we're able to have all the knowledge of how to get access to the best opportunities. And I remember when I first moved to Georgia as a recent immigrant from Mexico, immediately members of the school district assumed things about us, right? This kid must be from Mexico. They must have a low level of education. They must not know English. And immediately got put into remedial classes and was not offered any opportunities to get into more challenging coursework. And, you know, given the fact that my parents knew how to advocate for us, right? And they had the, the time to go and do that. I was able over time to move into a different track educationally where I was able to be offered additional opportunities. But that was because of that privilege, right, that, that my parents had to know where, what to do or how to begin to investigate that. And I remember I was a tutor for Upward Bound, which is an organization that partners with the government to provide tutoring for lower income kids. And in my community was primarily Black and Latino students. And I would talk to them about how they went about picking their classes. Like, how did you end up in you know, algebra as a junior or senior, right? Like, why are you at this particular level? And oftentimes they would say, well, that was just, it was picked for me, right? This was, this was all designed. I didn't really have a choice as to how this happened. And I think so many of our youth, right? Like get into a path where there's not a lot of choice available. They're kind of 
picked into a particular path and it's, it's hard to break out once that has been designed for you. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. there's a book by um, Malcolm Gladwell about outliers and he talks about hockey players. And ironically, he noticed that after looking at a ton of data, he noticed that some of the top hockey players were the ones who were born in like January or earlier months. And he was like, that doesn't make any sense. So he started looking deeper into it. And it turned out that if you're like four or five years old, is and he specifically looked at hockey players in Canada, that's when you get sent to like these camps where your coaches look at you. If you're five years old and someone else on your team is like four years old in three months, physically, because you are a little bit bigger, you'll perform better. And then your coach will spend more time coaching the better players. So by the time you turn like 11 years old, you've been able to like been exposed to way more practice, like way more games. And later on, it translates like how well you'll do when it comes to like the draft. So it sounds like in your case, if you're being put in intermediate classes when you're eight or nine years old, by the time you reach high school, it's not that you weren't trying hard enough. Like the whole system was pretty much set up not to set you up for success. So like what, what was interesting about your story and in the pre-chat you mentioned is you actually ended up going to a great school and you were one of the first students in your high school to be able to get into Stanford. So can you talk more about like what led you to kind of think outside the box and break this pattern? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're in a particular environment where you don't know anybody that's gone to something like Stanford or Harvard or MIT, why would you even think to go there, right? Mm -hmm. And I think especially at that time when, say, you know, 2004, 2005, when I was thinking about what college might look like for me, the resources were much more scarce online for figuring out how to do that. And I didn't know anyone that had been to a program out of state, much less a school that's ranked in the top 50, right? And I was very lucky that I was able to go to a short fellowship program at Georgetown where it was about helping students of color get into law schools. And it was there that I met some students that came from more urban school districts where they had more access to resources. And they're the ones that told me, like, one, you should take your SAT or what kinds of things are important to start applying or where to start looking for resources. And it, I mean, I think by now this might have been 2004, 2005, I found College Confidential, which was this kind of funny online, not funny, it was, it was serious <laughs> online forum where people talked about how to get into college. Mm -hmm. And there were some things in there that were very, very useful and relevant. And there were also a lot of people on there who very much thought that the only thing that mattered were numbers. Yeah. And so, but it was a, a wide swath of people with differing levels of advice, but overall it at least gave you access to information. Mm. And, you know, to this day I ask people, it was pretty popular in a certain kind of subset of groups, of, group of people, but I don't know that it's that widely mm -hmm. known. And I don't know where else people were getting information. But for me, if I hadn't had that, I would have, have gotten to Stanford. Yeah. And I love that you kind of, you stepped outside your environment and you were seeking for resources to prepare you, like to educate you on how the system works. And I think a lot of people even bring into tech, to them, it's an outside, like a black box and they're not from the tech background. But by starting to listen to podcasts, reading news, connecting with other people, that's usually the game changer that once someone else kind of takes you under their wing or shares some of the advice, it makes everything else easier, right? And tell us a little bit kind of like how discovering this website helped you with getting to Stanford. I mean, I think concretely, if you don't even know the timeline that things have to get done, mm -hmm. it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to get into a, a strong program, right? I mean, if you don't know that you have a much higher chance of getting into a program with early admissions, you wouldn't think to do that, which means you have to start early. Or I actually didn't apply early, but mm -hmm. it would have been very beneficial to do mm -hmm. so, right? It definitely helps you. So the kinds of things you can learn on the website are things like how and when to take the SAT, what kinds of strategies are helpful in doing well, 
the fact that doing AP classes is really helpful to help yourself kind of show, you know, show that you have put in additional work. My school didn't have a lot of AP classes. So what I actually did after spending some time there figuring out what kinds of things are metrics of like, mm-hmm. who is a stronger candidate, quote unquote, I actually went to community college my last year because my high school wasn't mm-hmm. giving me enough resources to continue seeking out mm-hmm. higher level coursework. And Georgia at least has something really cool that's called the Hope Scholarship. Mm-hmm. So props to public education being funded by taxpayers mm-hmm. because it's good for everyone. And I was able to go to community college for free and get much better, higher quality math and science education, but just in general, right? Like access to college level educational resources. And I think it really, really helped mm-hmm. me make Stanford just a little bit easier when I arrived. Yeah. And what um, we'll get to this breaking into startups piece, but one last question around getting into college. What role did your parents play in terms of helping you navigate the landscape and apply to colleges? I mean, frankly, I think my parents were just extremely supportive of mm-hmm. me doing whatever I wanted to do. And they trusted me to take the best choice. They were a little hesitant about me applying to Stanford. It was a little unknown or applying basically to private schools in general, because I think there's a lot of lack of knowledge, especially in migrant community or in parents that are not from the U.S. There's a lack of knowledge about the fact that there's a lot of financial resources mm-hmm. available for people to go to private schools. And they just assume the 50 or $60,000 sticker price is what it's going to cost. And so purely on that, they were a little skeptical, but I kept doing my research and realizing, hey, actually, this is going to be cheaper perhaps than going to UGA or Georgia Tech Mm -hmm. or, you know, somewhere else. And when I got my scholarship, when I got my letter of admission and subsequently the letter that tells you how much you're going to have to pay, it was very clear it was the best option. So they didn't, they didn't complain after that. Yeah. Yeah. And and I love that you plugged community college because, you know, here in the Bay Area, Jane Kim made it free for any resident to be able to go to community college. And I think something else that she brought up when you and I were meeting last week is community college has moved more people into the middle class than any other four-year institution, which is something that's important to to think about. And so given that you had this experience to go to community college, go to college at one of these top schools, how did you leverage all those experiences to break into tech? Yeah. I mean, I, I went into college not really having a set vision of what my life was going to be like. I had some assumptions. I thought maybe I would go into academia. That's how I spent a lot of my time is doing research. And I was very privileged to spend some time in Senegal and Panama and Bolivia doing research on water and sanitation because this was a personal passion of mine. I grew up in an agricultural community where I saw the environmental impact on folks who were, or rather the impact health-wise on folks who were working in the fields and working in dangerous conditions. I saw the impact of not having full access to water during a time of drought in California and Georgia. And so this was a particular passion of mine, and that's the kind of the route I went down to. But it was in my time doing some research for the World Bank in Senegal and being out in very rural areas in Senegal doing, frankly, very stimulating and exciting research on access to water and how that impacts people's lives, that I saw people doing amazing things with their mobile phones. People in very rural areas and all all parts of the African continent, but I was specifically in Senegal have access to phones before they have other kinds of assets, other kinds of devices in their home. And they, you know, it is often their most expensive, if you're talking about rural areas, the most expensive thing that they own because it adds so much value to their lives. So I was specifically doing a research project on how access to water improves your chances to make income. But what I found was, you know, access to phone was another big thing that mm-hmm. improved, improved your access to mm-hmm. making income. And that, that wasn't my research topic, but it made me curious like, well, how can I contribute to this, right? And how can I, people are already building great solutions to, for themselves, for their own communities. Mm-hmm. Like, what can I do for the communities that I know back home? And so that's really what prompted my shift towards going into 
working at a tech start- startup. And specifically, it was one focused on caching mobile content for folks that don't have access to a consistent connection all the time. So they could pre-cache content and use it to educate themselves to, you know, to find Sorry entertainment. To interrupt. Can you explain yeah. what caching is? Yeah. So, uh, we... it, you know, this was, yeah, absolutely. So this was 2011 and it was a company that was helping people save content on their phone locally so that if they didn't have an internet connection, they could watch it. So it was specifically for video content. You could also do it for text. But the idea is like it's expensive to stream video on your phone when you're paying for every amount of data mm-hmm. transferred, right? And so this particular technology allowed you to save it. This was before YouTube or Spotify had the ability to save content on your phone and watch yeah. it whenever, right? Mm-hmm. Got it, got it. Super cool. useful. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about kind of like, how did you discover your first like startup and what was it like applying there and getting that first yeah. job? I mean, I had spent so much of my time at Stanford thinking I was going to be doing research that I hadn't really invested any mm-hmm. time in thinking and going down the route of being a tech person. And so... Mm-hmm. It was kind of starting from the very beginning. It was in my last few months at Stanford, but I kind of had had this revelation that I wanted to take a different path. Mm-hmm. And I just started talking to people. So just people in my vicinity. I knew people who had already been funded by YC, just people who were my friends in my class. And so mm-hmm. that proximity kind of really helps you kind of jumpstart things, right? So started talking to them about what it means to work in tech. How do my skills from an... I had studied anthropology as my major. How could those skills be transferred into something different? And some advice that I was given that I took very quickly was simply like, find a place where you think you could contribute and in any way and go down that route. Don't think too much about the title or the even the, the focus of the company as much as just like where you're going to learn, you're going to contribute. And you can be mentored in more than just hands-on mentorship. You can be mentored by observation of really smart people, right? And so in doing these many conversations, I had a lot of informational conversations with people both on campus and off campus. I met someone who was a Stanford alumnus who has now become one of my really good friends. His name is Avichal Garg. And so he was starting this company, Spool, and he was already a, a repeat entrepreneur. And so he was starting Spool and he needed someone to come in and do everything that wasn't engineering. So I came <laughs> in and did what was called product marketing, but really it was absolutely everything that needed to get done. And it was such a fun way to just get into tech and see every dimension of what it means to start a company and to help people be better at their jobs, right? So engineers want to launch something, design resources are scarce today. All right, I'm just going to like build this asset, right? Or do everything from scratch. And that's yeah. what I spent my and first... And for folks trying to figure out the best position to start or the, be- the size of the company, what advice do you have for them? Because you you seem, it seems like you went for a smaller startup, mm-hmm. a small team, a lot of responsibility. Kind of, did you plan that or did you just happen to kind of fall into that role and then kind of took it from there? I don't think there's any one way to do it that is more correct, but I will mm-hmm. say it depends more on how risk averse you are. Mm-hmm. And if you are more risk averse, I would recommend going to a more established company where there's a more established brand and you're going to do a more cookie cutter job. You're going to get a lot of that, a lot out of that because you're going to get a great network. You're going to learn how to do one job well. You're going to become a little bit more of a specialist and there's a lot of value there. If you're the kind of person who perhaps likes to be a little less confined to one role. You're a little more creative. You want to be in a more flexible situation and you like to have the opportunity to create a little more, then I would recommend going to a smaller company. Of course, that comes with a share of risk, right? And you have to be prepared to know you know, what you're willing to do if things don't work out. And I hear so many stories through this network of folks who are just showed up and slept on a couch hustled and found their first job. And I think that, you know, like if you have the capacity to do that, if that's something that you're willing to do, that is not the worst case scenario in the world, right? Like if you are working actively on building the strong relationships in your community and making friends that will back you up, like your community will back you up, right? Mm -hmm. So, and likewise, you should be willing to do that for other people too. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Related to the way that you started continuing paving your way into breaking into tech, something unique happened to you or to your organization. You talked about how things don't work out. You know, I think it's common. And for the people that are just tuning into the podcast for the first time, it's commonly known that most startups fail. Um, and the way that they fail is different. Um, and, and the trajectory that's technically not a failure that sometimes people talk about is an aqua hire um, or just kind of like things like that. And so it could be taken in, in multiple ways. So can you kind of explain what that type of exit trajectory is? Absolutely. So there are, I might have mentioned earlier, I did work in venture capital for a little bit, so I can get a little more technical, but there are many ways that companies can have some kind of exit or that they can just end, right? And one of them is that companies can get acquired and companies either get acquired because the acquirer wants the talent and they're willing to pay a premium for that, or they get acquired because they want the technology and the talent, or I guess also just the technology. But in many cases in Silicon Valley, companies get acquired primarily for the talent because smart, experienced people who already have experience working together and they can kind of come in and get plugged in and build something really cool. So yeah, I worked at, at a team, that my, the very first company I worked at, that was building this really cool technology. But there were some challenges in terms of who would use it over the longer term and whether or not that technology would be built by someone else. And in fact, right, that technology is now built in-house by teams that help users cache content on their own, right? So, but it was a very interesting time to be working on that particular product. And some of that team went to Facebook and they got, and some subset of those folks decided to take that offer and get acquired. One member went to Twitter and I went to Dropbox. Got it, got it. And that's how I ended up there. Yeah, and I think it's important to emphasize because I know part of the reason why people are so fascinated by technology is not just because of you know how it's creating new skills and jobs and making things more efficient, but it's also how a lot of the wealth is being created out here and people are getting rich, which has caused a bunch of other problems. But you also have to just like be aware of that process. And so you got into Dropbox and you had what position and, and what made you excited about that and, and why did you decide to leave to become a venture capitalist? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got into Dropbox when it was under 150 people. It was circa 2012, I believe. And it was at a time when Dropbox was the hottest brand in town for engineering, right? It was a, it was a really exciting time to be at the company. Dropbox is still a hot brand, by the way, but yeah. it was even more so then. And yeah, it was a, a very fun time, a very great group of smart people coming together and very motivated to make this super painful experience of sharing content, or sharing files rather, much better. And I came in and was a very early account manager right when the company was going from being a kind of a more pure consumer model to B2B. And I was kind of thinking about my career and actually realized that every single company I've worked at, with the exception of Spool, which was only, it was less than 12 months, has been a B2B2C company. And it's funny how I have never planned to only work in B2B2C, but it's this interesting space where you are thinking about two key users that have very, very different needs and having to find the connection between the two. And I found that particular problem to be fascinating, right? And so in the context of Dropbox, it was both B2B and B2C. And I worked on the B2B side when they were just getting it off the ground. I was one of the first five account managers. Yeah. 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 And can you talk more about what does a, an account manager do at Dropbox, especially at that stage? And then also explain... B2B and B2C, yeah. like sure what, what are those? Uh, sure yeah, what does that yeah. mean? So business to consumer means mm -hmm. you're a business selling to a consumer. Okay. So that could be Facebook, right? Like, And they're not really selling because they're just, you are using it passively or you're using it without yeah. actually exchanging money, right? But B2C would be something like Facebook. 
in the context of the end user using Facebook online, right? B2B would be a company like HelloSign, where you are a company buying a product from another company being HelloSign, right? So two businesses interacting with each mm-hmm. other, that's B2B. B2B2C would be a company like us, like interviewing IO, where we are bringing candidates in on the consumer side. So consumer meaning the part that is touching the end user that is interviewing. They're getting technical interviewing experience live on our platform. And the ones that do really well and feel ready to start looking for jobs are then shown to companies, right? So they are they go from being just a consumer user of the product to then using the product by way of a relationship with the company. So I manage for our company now, right? I manage the side where I'm helping bring companies on the platform. But when you're at a B2B2C company where you're occupying both spaces, you have to think about what both users want and need. Yeah. So you're like a platform that on one side has access to companies that are hiring, right? And then on the other side, you have access to, in case of interview IO, people who want to get engineering jobs, and then you connect the two. So you kind of have to think about both angles and both experiences. When it comes to sales, particularly when you're breaking into sales, I know there are several things that hiring managers will look for. One is like, do they come from the industry or do they come from the same deal size that you were doing earlier from your experience? Does that matter if uh, you were at a B2C company before and now you're trying to do B2B or if you were doing like B2B and then you want to do B2B again, it increases your chance of actually getting that job? I do think it increases your chances of getting a job if you can show you've done it before, because there are some things that just come with having done the job for a while, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you have to do it as an employee of a company, but it does help to have done the job. So there are some kinds of sales that are highly specialized, right? If you have never worked in biotech and you're selling a biotech product, that's going to be pretty Mm -hmm. hard. You have to know your stuff. However, the pure act of selling in its purest form is just making relationships with people and Mm -hmm. understanding what they need, knowing what you have to offer and showing it to them in a way that's compelling. So I do believe that if you're a good salesperson, you can apply it to any context. But the hard part is having the expertise about the context in which you're working in to be able to do that effectively. But I I think that can definitely be learned. And that's just research, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, And I think part of the reason why I brought up the other stuff before around like companies getting acquired, being at Dropbox at 150 employees, goes back to what you were talking about with being risk averse. Because another reason why people go to smaller companies is because of the how it can help their career. Mm. Because if they didn't go to like one of these big schools, and we have a whole podcast interview about with interviewing IO founder and you on it, talking about all the different things that are broken in the hiring process that we're trying to fix. But if you went to a Dropbox that surely that's the hottest name in town at the time when you were there, it helps you with whatever you want to do later. And it kind of like positions you as like a savant that was able to predict joining a company earlier before it was the biggest, hottest thing that it is today. And so I think that's important to point out. And so how did you leverage that Dropbox brand on your resume in addition to Stanford and coming from rural part of Georgia and Mexico to breaking into venture capital? I think brands matter the most when you're the earliest in your career and you feel like you have something to prove. And wearing that on your sleeve a bit too much can actually be detrimental. You don't want to rub people, you don't want to rub this information in people's faces. Uh, It is much more important for you to actually show your competence, Mm -hmm. show what you have to offer, show your expertise, show up and go to events and be active in the community. 
at some point, I think the brands stop mattering as much. No one, I don't go around telling people I went to Stanford. We're talking about it today because it's relevant to the conversation, but no one really cares. What they care about is what I did in my last job and maybe the one before that and what I can bring to the table, right? So I think to some degree, at some point, you got to, sometimes we hold on to the brands for ourselves because it's a security blanket more than other people care. And I think at some point you got to just let that go and focus more on what you're contributing today. And, you know, that's why I think, you know, the use of social media, online media platforms for for talking about what you are doing is so important because you are the master of your own brand, your own narrative, and you have the ability to create what people want to know about you. And what you say is the reality. Yeah. And it's funny how in today's world, your personal brand does matter a lot, even if you're an individual contributor, just navigating the, like the job search landscape. Like if you're an engineer who has blog posts that have a lot of likes on free code camp, that could actually end up helping you more than someone who is just like great at algorithm problems, but doesn't have as big of a presence. So I think it's interesting to see how in today's world, you can almost craft your brand over like five years. And then when people Google you, they'll be like, oh, this person has these blog posts and they're actually knowledgeable about these topics. And you have to do less like selling about yourself. One of the biggest things I tell people, especially some of the younger people that I help mentor through some of my, some of the organizations I volunteer with is that relationships are the most valuable capital that you have. And people will always remember how they felt when they spent time with you, right? They're not going to remember what you said. And kind of being consistently there and present for folks and being nice, just like being just genuinely nice. It goes a very, very long way. Just being someone that people want to be around. I mean, fun fact related to that point is Anna, just going to Anna's house for a housewarming led to my job at Honor meeting Ren. And it wasn't even like planned out that way. We were just hanging out. It wasn't transactional. I was actually trying to help Timur get a job at Honor after he graduated App Academy. And then it ended up flipping and being my job. So, you know, that's awesome. So appreciate you doing that. And by the way, if you haven't checked out Anna's blog post about getting into Silicon Valley startups, which is a guide for non-techers, you should check it out. But how did you get to VC? Because a lot of people want to know how to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely did not plan to go into VC. I was intrigued by it because I could see how so much of Silicon Valley culture is created at that particular point, you know, from the event, from the funding part of the experience. I was also intrigued by it because in the end of the day, the things that become popular products and services often happen because someone picked them, right? There's a lot of of things that we now use that were benefited a lot from someone's reputation. And I I found that to be really interesting. Like what kind of world would we have if someone else had been funding stuff? And so it was something that intrigued me, but I hadn't necessarily decided that was going to be my life goal. But I got into a situation kind of by chance somewhat. I don't, I think you, at least to some degree, create your own chance with the people you surround yourself with. But I was at Dropbox and again, like very hot time to be there, like building awesome stuff. But what I did notice in the community in Silicon Valley as a whole was just this huge dearth of diversity of folks and experiences in the sector as a whole and definitely internally at Dropbox, right? I mean, it was known to be this hardcore coder culture, hacker culture that came from lots of prestigious backgrounds, primarily folks from MIT at Stanford. And I think we all in this room know that that's talent is not only coming out of MIT and Stanford and the people that they hired were being hired from the schools because it was the most expedient thing they could do, kind of relating to an earlier part of our conversation around people are trying to do pattern matching just so they can finish a job more quickly. And perhaps it is somewhat efficient, but it is very, very unfair. And in the end, you're losing out on great talent that really, really want to work somewhere. So 
in being at a, a hot company that was hiring so much every single day, I was privy to a lot of conversations around hiring. And it was just very, very clear how people's assumptions about certain groups of people or assumptions about what works in reviewing people were so off, at least from my personal experience and what I had seen in the world. And so in kind of this conversation of what it means to have more diversity in tech was just kind of kicking off while I was at Dropbox. And there are some critiques about many startups having issues with a programmer culture, right? And I think we've started to see a lot of evolution in that. And now startups, companies overall, right, have a much more professional atmosphere as a result of people kind of calling out, like, why do we have to have a culture this way, right? And I think that's been overall a really positive thing for companies everywhere, that more people are welcome and feel like they can work and be their best selves at a company, right? But as a result of all these conversations and feeling like I was one of the only women of color I knew working in tech at all, right? And I can't even you know begin to think how it might be for a, a Latina software engineer. I don't know very many of them, sadly. And I run a community of almost 3,500 women who are women of color, but it is still sadly very underrepresented. But at the time, I did not have a community like that. I remember just feeling, frankly, very alone, not knowing that many women of color. And so I started reaching out to my network and talking to other women who I didn't know who were women of color. And we started a Facebook group, a few of us. It was, a, you know, it started with like eight or 10 people. And it actually expanded to be this much larger network overnight. It was, you know, several dozen. And within a year, it was over a thousand. And it is now, you know, I mentioned has almost 4,000 people now. And it's it, obviously a community will evolve over time as it gets bigger. But what it still has is this amazing, it's an amazing space for people to feel more safe to discuss issues that perhaps they don't discuss in other contexts. And also just to help each other get one entry point into a company. So someone will post like, hey, I want to work at Instagram. Who knows anyone who works there? And there'll be like a long list of people that say they know someone, or at least they have some tips on what to do. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. And it seems like education and skill development and what you can do has been core throughout your entire experience. And it sounds like that might be what led you to being at Udacity um, and with our online education and then interviewing IO to learn, you know, to figure out how to develop skills. So can you talk about, you know, how you brought all those things together to do that? Absolutely. Well, I, I skipped the whole part about Kapor because I went on this other tangent about, about the community, but I'll touch on Kapor real briefly. So in being at Dropbox and seeing all of the happenings in the community in relation to diversity and inclusion, I got connected to Mitch and Frida Kapor Klein. And they are two leaders of the DNI space uh, here in Silicon Valley. They've started an amazing foundation called the Kapor Center for Social Impact. And they also started a VC fund. And that fund was my entry point me into venture capital. And again, didn't plan it, but ended up there a little bit by accident. And it was truly because some of the things they wanted to invest in, I did have some experience in. So having a little bit of that prior expertise really helps, right? But they also wanted people on their team that knew something and cared about DNI in tech. And so I was able to bring that to the table as well and joined as an analyst. I was also running a diversity and tech fellowship program while I was there and got promoted to associate and got to help on many deals and help kind of do a lot of the higher responsibility activities like doing diligence and on all of the legal paperwork and managing relationships with founders and mentorship. It was a really awesome experience. And so for me, you know, if I was going to succinctly summarize how to get into venture capital, I would say you got to have a competitive advantage on a particular sector or mm -hmm. thing that you know a lot about, and then you have to work your network. Yeah. And, and it sounds like you've been able to leverage your passion for diversity and yeah. inclusion and kind of just your overall hustle for 
helping people level up and breaking into tech and just being involved and being community oriented, position you really well for meeting the founders Kpor, and through that you were able to get those positions. Can you describe a little bit about kind of what the responsibilities, what the differences and responsibilities are between VC and being in the startup? Because there's, it's still technically like in tech, right? You're still thinking about similar landscape, but what were some of the differences in your day-to-day between being a venture capitalist associate versus on the inside of a startup? Yeah. I mean, the, the role of, it's completely different mm-hmm. in terms of your, what you're doing day-to-day. When I was an associate at can you explain what a venture capitalist is? Sure. In Silicon Valley, a big driver of how startup companies get funding is that there are individuals that are coming together to build funds with private capital, as well as some public capital, like endowments of major universities. So there's all kinds of sources of funding that come together depending on the size of this fund that is being raised. And they come, so these private and these investors are called venture capitalists, bring lots of funds together. A larger fund could be a billion dollars in assets that it's coming from many, many sources. They put these funds together, they incorporate this entity, and they start investing those funds. And so those investors who lead that fund, they typically put a nominal amount, you know, one, depending on the size of the fund, maybe 1%, 2% of the whole value of the fund. So they do have some skin in the game, but they are representing a very large group of investors and trying to maximize revenues for everyone, right? So they're investing in very high risk entities that which is a startup right with the hope that one or two will be able to have a great exit and pay off the whole fund and investors know that right so that's why you know when we talk about anyone individually going to any startup yeah it's it's ridden with risk cuz the whole system was built such that a very small amount of companies will win but they'll win really really big mm-hmm. awesome and then kind of you've kind of got to see both from the VC perspective and startup perspective but then you chose to go back to startups right so kind of what led you to that kind of twist in your trajectory of like deciding to go back into startups and joining Udacity? Yeah. Yeah. So I was at Capor Capital for a couple of years and gained an amazing network. And, you know, it's kind of to touch on briefly the kinds of things you get to do while you're doing that. You are meeting with founders every single day. You're learning a lot about the sectors that you're working in because you have to, you know, you can't be as much of an expert in an individual topic as any one given founder, but you have to know enough to be able to to see the differences in models and make a determination around which one you think is going to do better. So you have to know a lot about, you know, the individual sectors you're working in. You have so it's a lot of research, it's a lot of going and meeting people. Oftentimes the best research is done just going to places and hearing from experts, not trying to read on stuff, right? Because the knowledge is not held in books, it's held in the ecosystem around you. So being out there and meeting people is going to give you far more information than just reading a bunch of books or reading blogs. And so after doing I did spend about two years at Capor Capital. I got to do you know, a lot of networking, meeting with founders, a lot of community building. So I helped Capor really expand its uh, reach to Latinx communities in a big way by building relationships with different community organizations. And it was wonderful. I learned so much. But I remember starting to feel that itch to go build something. And I think a lot of VCs will comment on how you know, you're, you feel pretty far away from the action. You're obviously doing stuff that's really interesting and impactful and you're learning a ton. And you get to see like, you know, balance sheets and all these really cool things that give you great context on how the system works, right? But you're not the one building it. And some people get, get you know, a little bored with just doing that and they decide they want to go back to industry. So that's what I did. And so I had been looking at education and, you know, from many different perspectives because I've been doing some education deals through KPOR. And I was really excited about this possibility of going to a company where you could democratize access to education. It would be lower cost. And uh, people could, 
do educational supplementation on the side in a flexible manner, not pay a ton. And it's focused on what they need to get to the next level in their job. And I think a lot of our parents grew up with this idea that you go to college or grad school and then you're kind of done. You've learned what you needed to learn and then that's kind of it. And course, now we're in a more competitive labor market. Things move very, very quickly in terms of education and you really can never afford to stop learning. And so I got to the way I got into Udacity, frankly, was again, connections, right? My college roommate was an early employee at Udacity. And so I had that particular connection and I had been watching them for a long time, just interested in their model. And I think something that's very cool about Udacity is they've tried many things. They've been around now for six or seven years. They've very openly talked about their failures and they've had many. I mean, the space of online education on the MOOC side is just filled with companies that have tried things and not done well. It's a very, very hard business. But I think what Udacity is doing very well right now that they're being really recognized for is that they're focusing on credentialing that is relevant to the job that you want, not just some abstract stuff about stuff you don't, about stuff that you may or may not need. They're teaching people what they need in an efficient, fast manner. And then they're helping validate that credential publicly with partnerships with companies. And that was my job. So I came in when there was no career partnerships function. And I started that from the ground up, went and started building relationships with companies who wanted to hire talent and who were interested in the non-traditional profile very much. And so, but also they were interested in skill sets that were in high demand and not really able to be fulfilled in any other way. And so Udacity actually launched some really interesting curriculum around AI and self-driving car technology, but they also have had, you know, for a long time coursework in full stack and backend and mobile. And so, you know, working on getting partners for all of those programs. And I really was there because I I really truly believe that more access needed to be Mm -hmm. provided. Yeah, that's amazing because there's someone in our community, Bill, who reached out to us right around the time when we started writing about our experience breaking in. And he ended up going to Hack Reactor and started taking the nano degree for self-driving cars after mm-hmm. he graduated. And then I think maybe six months ago, he ended up joining a team to build a self-driving car and then competed at a race after taking the nano degree course. And now he just got a full-time job at a self-driving car startup out here in the Bay. He's a recent college grad, like learned how to code on his own, then did Hack Reactor nano degree. And now he's working with engineers that have like years of experience in AI, self-driving technologies, and he's able to do this in a matter of maybe 12 months. So it's amazing. Yeah. Anna, so I wanted to ask you, so you emphasized relationships that help you, that help you get jobs at these amazing startups. But we know that relationships will kind of get your foot through the door, but then it's up to you to perform in those interviews. So can you describe some tactics or any strategies that you've used to either prepare for interviews or when you're sitting at a table across from someone, how do you figure out like what to say and how to relate to them so they see you as someone who is going to be able to add a lot of value to their team? Every company has very different ways that they interview. So it is hard to overgeneralize mm-hmm. on this particular matter, but I will talk about some general principles. So I think, and again, I was kind of applying for a business role, which is different than engineering. But I think in terms of building trust, I think first you just have to come in, build rapport, be likable, right? Like find opportunity to build some common rapport and you know understand more about what they're about. If the interview allows for that, some interviews are more structured. You're not going to be able to do that as well. But you know, warm body, warm. I guess uh, the way you you hold yourself with how you hold your body, right? Like a more open stance, 
more use of your your hands so that you look engaged, right? Like direct, and at least in American culture, like actually looking people in the eye is very important. That's not the case everywhere. Good clarification. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that you can do. I mean, you don't cross your arms in an interview, right? There's a really good book about body language. I think it's called like the comprehensive guide for body language or something. I can give that to you all later and you can put it in the notes for the blog, but there are lots of resources for learning about body language. I think it's the very first thing you can work on that where there's a lot of information and it's easy to work on. I think once the interview is actually kind of kicking off and you're talking about stuff, I think it's best to focus on the big picture way of solving the problem and less about the immediate tactics. And of course, that depends on the context and how the question was asked, but showing that you can think a little more kind of in a more meta way, I guess, about the particular issue at hand and less about individually how it would solve this very kind of tactical thing and, you know, going into going to specifics when needed, but also being able to show that you have a big picture view of the issue. Yeah. 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 And is that related to, let's say this company is in the, like messaging space. So would you recommend someone like doing research about the whole industry and landscape and then during the interview, kind of like talking about the whole problem, like that they're trying to solve on your ideas? Or are you referring more to like, if someone gives you like a question, like a brain teaser, you approach it from more of a broader perspective rather than like jumping into details. If someone's giving you a brain teaser, you should walk out. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm teasing. I mean, I think that's a very poor question in terms of there's a lot of research that's been shown that brain Mm -hmm. teasers are not particularly predictive of anything and they just stress people out. Mm -hmm. So no, don't do that if you really want the job. But you know, I, you can't really be creative in terms of how you you address someone in a brain teaser. If you're given a brain teaser and you really want the job, you should try to do your best at it. But what I'm referring to more is questions where, and this is how I've typically been interviewed for jobs, is tell me you know, they give you a hypothetical about a particular problem in the market, or you know, make, they ask you to make some assumptions, and then you build a model for how you would solve that problem. So if you look at you know, the classic book for case interviews, right? It, I think it's case in point. It gives you a good model for how to break down a business problem, what kinds of questions to ask. Rarely do they give you every single point of data that you need to solve the problem. You're just supposed to make assumptions that are educated and, you know, be right in terms of, you know, a reasonable amount of error, right? And it's about asking the right questions, making the right assumptions, being collaborative. So as you're solving, for example, a business interview question, typically, you lay out what you know. So if you have a board or a computer or something, you write down the things, the inputs that you were told, right, up front. Perhaps you ask some basic questions. You start building the box of the things where the problem will be encompassed. And by box, I mean like how to start thinking about wrapping your head around the problem. And then you start making some assumptions and you can watch their body language and very quickly see if you're taking it down a route that they didn't really want. And you can check in and say like, oh, was that really, was that the spirit of the question or do you want to learn about something else? And it's a collaborative process and it's much more about how you show you work with people than where you end up, right? And this framework actually works really well for recording interviews too, because a lot of people or in general for all types of questions, people try to get the right answer versus talk about the process of how they got to the right answers. So what you just described is like, before you jump to conclusions, like find out what the inputs are, right? Like figure out what are the th- pain points or what are the problems that you're really trying to solve and then talk about the next steps. Yeah, And I a, think that's super useful. It's a great framework and not, not just because a lot of interviews fail for non-technical reasons, but also because interviews tend to fail for uh, nonverbal communication reasons. So you definitely got to understand all those things. And I know just during a lot of our conversations, you talk about language, a lot of things that you've uncovered through your experience at KPOR around bias and diversity inclusion. How are you leveraging your insights uh, with the experience before at, in your position with the Chicana Latina Foundation and Code.org? And how are you taking 
all of that and applying it to what you're doing day to day at interviewing IO? Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of code.org, I was asked to join their advisory council because I, I knew a little bit about what it meant to diversify a community, right? And Core.org has this amazing nonprofit that is largely driven by teachers that are seeking professional development so that they can offer computer science courses in areas that are largely otherwise not represented with computer science courses and AP tests. And so Core.org does a lot of the professional development there. They reach those teachers through local organizations. So they have a very kind of, they have strong ground game. They really know what, that if, if their end goal is to get more students acquainted with computer science and taking the test. They need to work within the constraints of that local community. So they partner directly with teachers. They offer them professional development. Teachers know that they get paid more if they teach those high in demand, more specialized courses. And so they seek it out for that reason and because they think it's interesting, right? But so they, you know, they work directly with teachers on that. They work with local nonprofits. But I think one thing where they are always looking to improve on is making sure that they're always increasing access to the communities that most need it. And so they reached out to me asking to help them advise on that particular matter. And so every month we, with every kind of advisory board meeting, we talk about a different issue, like how to reach more folks in rural areas, how to, it varies month by month, but it always kind of comes down to organizations needing to have an external perspective outside of their day to day. It's so easy once you are, you know, the specialist in something to take things for granted because you start getting into the position. This is generic, not about this org specifically. You start feeling like you already know everything and you have to take that external perspective and get a little bit of of a reality check out externally, right? And so we help offer that for them. But yeah. frankly, I feel like I'm learning so much from them because they have such a tight operation. Yeah. And speaking of perspectives, you mentioned how your anthropology background actually helps you a lot in your like day-to-day job across various industries, like from different companies where you worked. Can you talk more about that? How are you able to combine your prior experiences with kind of this like tech world and tech responsibilities that you do now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think that, you know, on the one hand, it's really valuable for us as a society to be a little more specific about the skills that we want to do a job. On the other hand, the skills that we need to do a job are going to be rapidly changing and you're always going to need the ability to critically think and figure out what needs to be done. And I think you need both to be effective in the world that we live in. And what I'm really grateful for in terms of my anthropology training is that it allowed me the basic, it gave me the basic frameworks for understanding how to solve problems and how to ask the right questions. So a lot of what I did while studying anthropology in college was learning about theories of things, right? Like how the world, how things are structured, how relationships happen between people, things around reciprocity and how that has impacted how whole societies function now, right? So you learn about theories of how societies start and then you apply that to a different context or, you know, to a particular case study. And a lot of what you do in terms of field work is you pick a very specific topic and a very specific community and you go and you do what they call deep hanging out. Like you're literally hanging out there for long periods of time. You're getting to know people and you're building trust. And then you're actually observing and spending time with people and then interviewing them. But it's very methodical. People think anthropology is just this kind of pseudoscience, but it's very methodical on how the information is captured and how how it is written. And there's a lot of theory about how important it is to have a, a, an embedded perspective versus an external perspective. So it's a, it was fascinating. It gave me a really thoughtful, I guess, platform for going into any new discipline, but specifically I've applied it to tech and bringing that ability to ask questions that other people don't think about because they're focused on their particular silo. Yeah. It sounds like an amazing study, especially if you're in tech and you're thinking about consumers and clients and identifying pain points, kind of having that 
educational background, I'm sure gives you an extra edge whenever you encounter different like problems that you face day to day. That's awesome. So tell us a bit more about your current role at Interviewing.io. Like, uh, you were on another podcast with Aileen, and she talked a little bit about um, kind of what Interviewing.io does. But tell us more about your role and like what uh, inspired you to make the transition. Yeah, absolutely. So Interviewing.io, I'll, I'll summarize real quick, is a two-sided marketplace for candidates to get interviewing practice live with real technical interviewers. And then if they do well and they choose to move forward with looking for roles, they're then given access to apply to jobs with our partner companies. And that part about the partner companies is the part that I'm working on. I, I head up sales at Interviewing.io. And what I do day to day is basically build relationships with companies, with individual members of companies. You know, you, you never build relationships with companies themselves, right? It's with people. So trying to understand the needs of individual people at companies that where you know there's a, a big hiring need for software engineers, and then you seek them out at the right time. So building relationships, it's not, this, this sort of thing doesn't happen overnight. You start understanding what they need and you build up a case over time. You help them understand how you're different from other companies that may be offering us a somewhat similar service, but where there's differentiation, you help them make a case for it internally. Because at the end of the day, the hardest part of sales is making sure that the person you're selling to looks good to their mm -hmm. people that they work for, right? Mm -hmm. So you're helping them be an advocate for you internally. You're not just selling to a company as an entity, you're selling mm -hmm. to people. And so a lot of my time is spent building relationships, talking to people, learning about all of the needs in the sector, because when it comes to recruiting, every company is different. Every company has their own processes and you have to be able to adapt to their needs or help them give them a model that will change the way they work in a way that will work for everyone, right? So you have to be able to work creatively with them to make that work. Yeah. You mentioned that something unique that you guys have is you have a lot of data or on the previous episode, um, we talked about how interviewing.io has a lot of data about the people taking the challenges or practicing interview questions and then what types of people end up getting into jobs at these companies. When you're having these conversations with uh, your counterpart person at these companies, how do you leverage that data to make a stronger case? for uh, like if it's working or not and if, if they should be like using Interview.io and like continue working with you? Yeah. I mean, the biggest pain point for individual recruiting teams and engineering organizations is that recruiting is so laborious. It's so time consuming. People oftentimes end up resenting it because mm -hmm. it, it distracts them from the rest of their day, even though recruiting, I think, frankly, is, is very fun as well, right? When you get to meet individuals. But the activity as a whole at high volume can be very exhausting. And as a result, it creates a set of incentives in companies where they're trying to pattern recognize and do things more efficiently and quickly. The end result of that is that they are often using the wrong proxies or ones that are not you know, fully inclusive, but that help them make their, do their job faster. And they're in the meantime, leaving out a lot of other kinds of people. And so the way that we actually work is we bring people on the platform, they're interviewing with us anonymously, and then we're using that data to expose the people that perform at a high level to companies and they're interviewing with those companies anonymously. And what we find from a data perspective, that's the most valuable data point is that on average, 60% of the people that interview on our platform with a company move on to the next stage, which is typically an onsite. If you look at conversion rates for other kinds of sources of candidates, it's nowhere near that. It's somewhere between maybe 10 and 20% on a good day, right? So if you're just saving people time, but in the meantime, you're also adding this extra layer of anonymity, which helps both reduce bias as well as stereotype threat on the side of the candidate, right? 
and and you're just you're just better yeah. at being able to expose top talent and as well like you're you're just offering a, a killer value proposition so that's the number yeah yeah so um that's a great answer and i think any product that adds additional efficiency to this hiring process is obviously a win cuz there's thousands of hours go down to like interview candidates who end up getting rejected and if you guys can provide them with a service where it streamlines the whole process plus helps them get uh, folks from non-traditional backgrounds into the pipeline. It definitely helps them. I'll comment on that too, because we do have a little bit of data and I hope we are able to uncover more over time, but we found that perhaps as many as 40% of the candidates that we place might not have gotten a job mm-hmm. there otherwise because of how they looked on yeah. paper on a resume. Huge. Yeah. Huge, huge. Yeah. Yeah. So usually, usually Archer kicks, kicks off the first comment, but I'm, I'm going to kick it off this time to talk about family. So to, you have two siblings, correct? That's right. What advice do you have for them with respect to breaking the tech and describe like a little bit about them? Yeah, I have a younger sister named Gabby. She's about 25 and I actually helped her break into her first tech job. She had graduated from a a state school in Georgia where she studied cognitive science. And so she's always been interested in kind of the brain and psychology. And she won, frankly, she wanted to come out to the Bay Area because of the cultural opportunities it offers as well as kind of access to employment opportunities. And she came out and she worked at an awesome fintech startup for a while. And she's now moving into a new opportunity. And my little brother is named Juan Carlos. He's currently in college and he's studying music in Georgia. And I don't think he has any particular aspirations to be in tech. He loves music. And I think that that's awesome. Like not everyone needs to work in tech. Like that's gonna, it's gotta be something you actually want to do. My sister may end up doing something relating to music and tech. That's, I think that's where they kind of overlap. In terms of kind of advice for folks on, you mentioned about like how to support their siblings and yeah. transitions into tech. I mean, I think many folks who have already broken into tech and know how the system works are in a unique position to help not only their siblings, but perhaps other folks from their community who are on the younger side and want access to that opportunity. And, you know, the lowest barrier way to start sharing that information is just tell them about platforms that help them get, get stories of how you could take part, right? So that's why I love this particular podcast you all give access to the story so people can get an insight into what it might be like to be there. But, you know, more tactically in terms of what individuals can do for their siblings, right? I mean, first, what I did is I just encouraged my sister to fly out. She slept on my couch for three months and I took her to mixers and hosted events and she got to meet a bunch of people. And I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's those, right, those relationships that help people break out. Totally. And Ruben's brother is actually staying with us now and starting his first day at App Academy tomorrow. So shout out, David. But yeah, I guess the next question is like once like now that you're already in tech, what is one thing that surprised you about this whole process and tech in general? I guess I didn't really know I was going to be in tech. And so I I didn't, you know, I, I learned things along the way as I was preparing to get into my first job. But one thing that has surprised me is how when you're in a fast changing environment in terms of technology, no one knows anything about it. Like I think about specifically Bitcoin, right? And some people who aren't as familiar with Bitcoin feel so scared to even think about even buying Bitcoin on Coinbase because it just seems like this foreign thing that's so risky. But you start talking to people and you realize very few people have any deep knowledge on this particular subject. Everyone is kind of learning as they go and things are rapidly changing. And I think much like, uh, you know, I think about stereotype threat in general as how in terms of approaching new opportunities and folks always think that other people know more than they do. And it's really important to remember that everyone is just figuring stuff out on the fly. And 
maybe they're a couple months ahead of you, but you can catch yeah. up. Right? A lot of the time, things that were relevant five years ago are no longer relevant or true right now. So it's all about learning, continuing to learn and getting mentored. Yeah. So the next question, it's going to be about imposter syndrome. So just looking at your track record, you went to Stanford, you worked at these amazing companies like Dropbox, you worked at Kpor, Udacity, now you're head of sales for Interview.io, and you're very confident when you talk about these experiences. But were there points throughout this journey when you felt like maybe you weren't able to do the job? And then what resources did you use in order to overcome those, that self-doubt? I suffer from imposter syndrome all the time. I think most people do and people just don't talk about mm -hmm. it. We're getting better at that in particular communities and, and being more open about that. But I, I think everyone experiences it and I definitely do. And whenever I've had those moments, what I choose to do is have some self-reflection about what I've accomplished before. So I, I spend some time writing down like what it is that I've done in my most recent experience, right? I talk specifically about, this is about telling myself this, I write down specifically the projects that I did and the impact that I had. And it's a really good reminder that you can, you can choose to dwell in the negative, but it's not real, right? What's real is what has actually happened. And so you need to remind yourself of that and give yourself perspective. Meditation has helped with that a lot as well, right? Like the thoughts that come into your mind are not real and you have to learn to tame that. But just in terms of also getting external quote unquote validation, right? Like it's always... I think a lot of people when they're stressed, perhaps say you you lose your job, right? And you're embarrassed, you're sad. Perhaps you put a little too much of your own identity into that. And now you feel like it's a personal reflection on you, right? I see that a lot. I think a lot of people's reaction to that is to hide for a few months and like get their self-esteem back. And I feel like that's actually the worst thing you can do. Sure. Like if you're a little sad, spend some time, you know, for yourself, do what you need to do. But I think the best thing you can do is to just go out and spend time with people and learn about something new. So every single time I felt like my confidence was low, I've just gone and went, gone to a bunch of mixers, events where I was learning stuff, gone online and read a bunch of articles and just realized like, wow, I'm learning so much in a short period of time and I, I will continuously have a lot to learn. But just being around smart people will just give me the perspective I need to get into whatever next thing I want to get. And, and again, bringing that, that human dimension of what you can contribute to any org is always met, at least in my experience, with such... I guess people find it refreshing when you can just be yourself and you are like just, you know, talking about what you can contribute rather than what, you know, don't, not dwelling on what you don't know. No one knows everything, but like talking about what you have done that is actually relevant and compelling, you know, presenting that in a compelling way, I think is the best way to get move forward. Yeah. 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 So given that music is so important, not just to your family, but also Latin American culture, what's, what's some of your favorite music? I listen. So I just in the last few months took on a really new challenge. So I found that a, a lot of my life I've been focusing on academic endeavors and not really like focusing on having fun. I think it's the immigrant child in me. And I realized that all these other folks have been spending their whole lives working on sports or music or something. And they had all these beautiful passions that I didn't have. And I thought that what a, what a big loss, right? To not have like a side thing that's not just like working on something intellectual or something related to work. And so I started taking singing lessons at the Community Music nice. Center in the Mission. It's an amazing nonprofit that's all about music for anyone. They subsidize music classes for people that can't afford to take them. And I, so I'm taking this class. It's called the Latin Vocal Workshop on Monday nights in the Community Love Music it. Center with this professor named Marta, who's an, a legend in Latin music here in the Bay Area. She nice. is, is hustling all over, doing lots of really great stuff in terms of music education. And I really thought I was that person who was totally toned off and couldn't do anything. And while I'm still not very good, Eileen heard me at karaoke recently. I've gotten much better. 
And I think more importantly, putting yourself out of the usual context of just thinking you always have to be productive or you always have to be improving in something that's relevant to work makes it such that you're putting too much of your identity on something that like you don't have full control over. Right. And I think it's really, really important to remember you just have to be like living your life and having fun, too. And so I started singing. I'm not, again, very, very good, but I've seen tons of improvement. And I've always really admired rancheras or mariachi from afar. But it's a very hard genre to sing if you're not musically trained. And I am now starting to sing rancheras in private. Wow. <laughs> we'll eventually be having a performance. But that's where I'm spending a lot of my time right now. I'm finding uh, myself grounded in, in rancheras. Well, we'll be at that performance. And shout out to you and Marta for, awesome. for holding it down and, and pursuing some passions that you've been having deep down. And so what's the best way to keep in touch with you. Yeah, my blog is anadiazhernandez.com, just my name. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. If you're a woman of color, I invite you to join the Woman of Color and Tech Facebook group. I also have Twitter, A-N-A-D-I-A-Z-H-D-E-Z, Anadiaz Hernandez, with a few letters missing because mm-hmm. it's too long. There it is. Yeah, yeah there we'll include all of it in the show notes. So right. thank, thanks again yeah. for taking the time with us. I know I said it was only going to be one hour and we've been here for like five, but thank you. So we had fun. Thank you all. It was <laughs> so great. Thanks a lot, Anna. All right, everybody. Let's break in. Peace. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in. Let's break in.